this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'm your host, and I'm here with Rob Capitolupo, our new president, and we're really excited to have an, another excellent guest today, Andrew Kloster, who is a, a leading figure in administrative law and regulatory law, and we're, we're really excited to have him here. Uh, Andrew Kloster has served in various regulatory and legal counsel positions in the federal government and in private practice. Though you're currently at personnel policy operations, you really have an incredibly long and varied set of experiences that I think we have a lot to learn from. Uh, we could be here probably for the, for the whole episode just talking about all, all the incredible things you've done in your career. You, you served briefly as a presidential appointee at the Administrative Conference of the United States. You were a former associate director of the White House Office of Presidential Personnel, former deputy general counsel at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM, but also have a variety of experiences in the broader constellation of organizations and, and networks in the conservative legal movement, including time as deputy director for the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state at the uh, Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason. Uh, you were for some time a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And if you go back into, into the foggy realms of, of your career, you were the Justice Robert H. Jackson Fellow at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or so it used to be called before the recent rebrand. Uh, so, so you've done a, a, wonder, a number of wonderful, incredible things, and, and we're really, really lucky to have you here. Thanks for having me. Um, the event that we had last week was great, too. It was, it was great to be up in New Haven, wonderful questions and everything. So I'm just happy to get a chance to kind of follow up on that, talk about what I'm doing and, you know, sort of where we are as a movement and, and resources for, for young lawyers. Yeah, I think the, the great jumping off point there was you came and you spoke about Schedule F and uh, federal civilian hiring and, and kind of bureaucracy uh, more broadly. You spent some time at the Administrative Conference of the United States, ACUS, uh, which I think is one of the organizations that, that a lot of members of the conservative legal movement are, are looking to now, uh, thinking about administrative law and how to handle the kind of large administrative state that, we, that we've built up over the last half century or so. It's kind of started out as, actually, I think, a fairly conservative organization. You know, its third chairman was was a, a young former UVA law prof named Antonin Scalia, which you know, I'm sure our listeners I'm sure they know who Antonin Scalia was and what he would end up doing eventually. Uh, and even today, it's got a number of bright luminaries there. Um, so I, just talking through what, what, what you saw uh, when you were at the White House looking at ACUS and what you see as the future of uh, the conservative legal movement's response to the, to the growth of the administrative state more broadly. I'm you know, curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, so I guess I have two kind of main points. One is that ACUS had been untouched for the four years of the Trump presidency, which is kind of interesting because appointments uh, have three-year terms with holdover status. And typically when you have a holdover that's an opportunity for a presidential administration to give someone else a feather in their cap. But I mean, we had the Obama, OMB, general counsel, 
on ACUS the entire time until the very waning days of the Trump admin. You know, and there were many reasons for that. I think one of them was it was a thorny political issue because it is such a quote-unquote prestigious org on the conservative right. You had turf wars between the White House counsel and others, and it took a lot of negotiations to plow that through. Um, I ended up being appointed, Roger Severino, a couple of other people, uh, Professor Vermeule, who remains on ACUS. I was, of course, removed pretty quickly. But the hope, our hope, um, we wanted to put people on ACUS that were a little more substantive that their chops in administrative law couldn't be questioned, but that they had kind of a a different viewpoint. Because, you know, when I was at the Gray Center, when I was at Heritage, you come across a lot of people who were at ACUS, who go to the plenary sessions, who make recommendations, who write reports, Um, people like Sally Katzen, you know, other, other people, very competent people who know their doctrine very well. But typically, it's a fairly quiet org. And the reason for that is because it's kind of, comes from kind of the liberal good government, good government angle. So Vermeule hasn't been making huge waves there, but he is really kind of indicative of a sh- of the shift on the le- on the legal right. And I hope that in the future they have a chance to kind of do do some more because different agencies take different approaches, and there's no such thing as a neutral a neutral recommendation. And I think that was kind of where we were sort of coming from. Yeah, it seems a little bit ironic insofar as. The, the, the kind of dichotomy in the conservative legal movement is usually seen as one between President Reagan and President Trump in this respect, where, where it seems like President Reagan's approach was really a star of the beast approach. And that's why you got things like Clarence Thomas uh, leading the EEOC. And Trump's approach seemed to be, by and large, a feed the beast approach, which involved stacking the deck as far as one could with conservative figures in these administrative positions and these bureaucratic positions. So the fact that ACUS was not one of the first places to go seems almost atypical for that approach. Yeah. So, well, I mean, there are operational difficulties. And that's another thing that I've learned over my career is that, you know, I started my career at FIRE helping set up their campus sexual assault stuff. And, you know, that's an area, all of these areas, you talk with libertarians, you talk with people on the center right, and they get very obsessed with doctrine. And they say, if we win Hobbes, we'll win everything. If we overturn Obergefell, we'll win everything. If we get rid of Humphrey's executor, we'll win everything. What they typically don't think about is operationalizing doctrinal wins. And so, yes, it's the case that Trump could have made those appointments, but politics tended to block it. Yes, it's the case that the Senate filibuster doesn't really need to exist, but politics tends to block it. Yes, it's the case that agency heads have the ability to make removals. Yes, it's the case that the president can remove cabinet heads, but typically politics stops that and operational difficulties, you know, the thin farm team, all of these things, which are not legal doctrine, operate to limit the universe of of, of opportunity. So ACUS was certainly one of them. There were many others. I always say Trump was the most norm-following president in my lifetime. You know, he didn't fire all the U.S. attorneys. He didn't stack the deck on all these boards. You kind of framed it as if he were the integration from within candidate. I sort of wish, I mean, I'm not an integralist, but it's like, you know, there were a lot of things left on the board. Um, and I hope, and sort of what my new org is doing, what a lot of these orgs, Heritage, AFPI, other orgs are out there doing, FedSoc as well has always had some involvement with the legal staffing, is trying to make sure that we are planning for actual implementation, you know, rather than, you know, having an election stolen after you win it in the sense of you win it, but you don't capitalize on the gains. So I would like to pick up on this tension between a conservatives as understood now in a, in a post-Trump world and libertarians on their perspective of the administrative state. 
on the one hand, it seems like groups such as the NCLA are really leading the libertarian side to dismantle the administrative state. They took up cases like uh, Lucia to get rid of the SEC's regulatory um, hearings and trials. But then on the other side, you have people like Adrian Vermeule who are advocating for, in his famous paper, the optimal abuse of power, right? And using the administrative state as an instrument of the government, an energetic instrument of the federal government. In the next administration, how do you think that that tension is going to play out? Yeah, that's a good question because I I don't know. This is politics. This is the, you know, Sturm und Drang of, of politics, things sort of fighting their way out. You can't predict this stuff. I think that, um, and it's not just for Mule, the movement has been blown wide open in many respects. Dobbs, you know, in some sense, Dobbs was a vindication, quote unquote, of the conservative legal movement, but I think it's going to actually change things. I mean, you see some center-right pro-life groups arguing against heartbeat bills now. So people are starting to have the scales fall from their eyes, so to speak. How it's going to play out, I don't know. But the fact of being able to discuss these matters is hugely is hugely important. So yes, there's a tension there. Um, we can certainly continue to talk. I mean, even among the, the quote-unquote base, this is to get a little bit political, but among the quote-unquote, you know, unwashed, you know, middle of the country Republicans. A lot of people do like to talk about small government, but what they're missing, certainly what has been missing on the legal right is a theory of the state, is a theory of state power and understanding what we're aiming at. And the libertarians don't really have that. And so the Reaganite sort of view, the Bork, you know, originalist positivist view made a lot of sense when you had a country that still had a lot of orthopraxis or culture, cultural soil, you know, and you could say these words because people knew what man and woman meant. They knew what big government, small government meant. But we're reaching a point where we don't even have common naming customs, which means that a lot of these libertarian, quote unquote, second order arguments become less tenable. And it returns to kind of an ordinary, what was actually probably the practice in our country for much of the uh, 18th century and 19th century actual you know, patronage politics and, and power politics, which in some sense may be healthier than what we have, a kind of ossified, you know, relation back to abstract words on paper that don't really bear meaning to, to people's, you know, lived experiences or, li- uh, you know, direct lives. It's funny that you mentioned that because I think there's also a different kind of tension. I think that Rob keyed into some of the legal arguments and some of the I mean, to use a, a $10 word for a $1 thought, epistemological differences between conservative legal movement folks and, and libertarian legal movement folks. But there's also a tension between what you might say, Andrew, is member, more members of the base when it comes to, to hiring. And so should a White House hire people who come from, uh, say, a populist base or from a center-right establishment background? Those, those are kind of live questions, I think, in terms of... Uh, potential presidential administration. And I, I guess that keys into a question of really just about your background in, in White House personnel and, and what kind of processes you all were going through as you, I mean, so for the listener, Andrew was, as I said at the very beginning of the episode, the associate director at the White House Office of Presidential Personnel, which has responsibility for playing a role in the nomination and vetting process for, for roughly, what, four or 5,000 presidential appointees in the course of presidential administration. And the, the Trump office was, I, th- I think, did the same job as other offices, but every office has its own approach towards 
the level of political alignment or, or you know, pro- policy priorities that any given appointee uh, needs to satisfy before getting the, the official nod from the White House. So we'd love to hear more from you about, about what that process was like within the, the Trump administration and, and what maybe even your ideal process would be if it were any different. Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot. We certainly have written on it. We have you know, behind-the-scenes plans that my new org has been working on and other other groups have worked on as well. You know, I've spoken with people who have been in the offices under Reagan, under Bush, under others, even under uh, Obama. I've kind of looked at the structure. And so, really, there's a big question for anybody listening, which is um, executive branch management generally, White House management generally, or executive office of the president management, and then within that, White House management there are a lot of good papers out there um, on on the subject. Maybe I can send you some links afterwards. But for the personnel office, typically what you have is a, a huge staff at the beginning when you're trying to fill a lot of these vacancies, and then it tapers down and kind of reaches an equilibrium for you know the remaining three years of a term. But they ought to be adequately staffed. I think in the Trump administration, we saw a number of of issues was kind of delegated out to sort of McConnell people. We didn't quite get, you know, it was very difficult. But your first question was, should you be hiring, you know, someone from the red meat base or someone who's more establishment? And I think the answer is you often need both. You want to hire for loyalty, policy chops, competency, all of these things. It's hard to find someone who hits all these bumpers and for and different positions take different requirements. You know, some positions are less sensitive you know, maybe it's a director of faith outreach. And it's like, well, of course we want to do the South Carolina pastor that did an endorsement because I don't care that he's never served in government. I don't care that he's never managed more than his secretary. It's okay. Versus, you know, office of management and budget director or something like that. You might want someone more buttoned down in establishment. Maybe you don't. So it's an art more than a science, but I think loyalty is very important. People ought to understand that they're making a, a public service. When I was doing interviews and we set up a process, you know, I was by far the most senior attorney in the office. We only had one other attorney and I was serving concurrently at at OPM as their deputy GC and later acting GC. We set up this process to do all these interviews to kind of plan for a term two if there would have been a term two. And we did this in the summer of 2020. The goal there was to find out people's competencies, their policy chops, kind of also to do a a dive on who they are as a person and kind of what motivates them. And I think I've said before, when someone would say, I'd say, you know, what do you want to do in a term two? Some people are great. They're like, I just want to do what I'm doing. I love it. You know, I really want to serve the American people and the president. You know, that's a fine answer. But you would often see people say, well, I really want to get into the State Department, you know, financial arm. Well, why? You know, because I want to go work at Goldman Sachs when I leave, for example. So that's someone who might not have civic mindedness or execution of the mission on their mind. There's no, there are no direct answers to this. This is a people thing. And I think that's kind of my broad theme whenever I give a FedSoc talk is you can't have automatic processes and rules for everything in life. And you can't have that for hiring. It's kind of, I know it when I see it. You learn it as you go. It takes experience. And it also takes you know, it takes having actually done it. And it also takes kind of a sensitivity to the differences of people. So there's no one one size fits all answer to these things. But we certainly got a lot wrong. So how do you think a president should best deal with this principal agent problem? Obviously, with the growth of the executive branch, president oversees tens of thousands of employees and obviously can't 
monitor all of them. Um, if you're someone who subscribes to unitary executive theory, you you would think that the president is able to direct the branch and oversee the uh, branch at his will. When you have so many people, many of whom may have their own agendas, their own personal ambitions, how does an administration try to keep everyone in check? Yeah. So on paper, everything looks like the unitary executive works and functions well, right? In theory, the president can fire his cabinet secretaries. In theory, he can even fire certain other agency heads for cause. And for cause could mean, you know, I've lost faith in your ability to execute something very vague. It doesn't, you know, so even for cause protection is not, so on paper, everything looks great. But the reality of the world is the president has many priorities and the entire executive branch is an attempt, you know, this is kind of me being a lib, but it kind of rationally spits out outcomes, which are the considered lowest common denominator outcomes at the end of the day. Now, I think it's an inefficient machine that probably absorbs a lot of a lot, a lot of energy and takes favors for itself, and that's the problem. But the reality is, is let's say you've got an agency head who wants to execute on policy Y, and someone's blocking it, and it turns out that the someone blocking it is a career appointee who is simply not doing their job and instead AWOL or watching porn on their computer all day or something like that, because these things happen way more often than you think. Is is that a, a problem at these agencies? It happens a lot. No, it happens a lot. I heard something like this only a couple of weeks ago. You know, you talk with, even there was a Federal Society panel with Tammy McCutcheon, who was formerly of the Wage and Hour uh, Division under the under Bush 2, talking about personnel. And even she gave another example of the exact same issue. So it's a it's an issue. I think that was at the National Lawyers Convention, but she's, she's great. Uh, clerk for my judge who just retired. Um, so it is an issue. But you can have an agency head that wants to fire this person for managerial purposes, and you will get a phone call from, pick an office, Senator McConnell's office to the White House, saying this person better not be fired or we'll hold up your nom over here uh, for something banking related. Like, it, it blows the mind, but everything connects with everything. And the way that, you know, senators and members of the House exercise some of their authority is by holding up unrelated matters. So what it takes is good communication and strong backing. It goes all the way to the top. So what may have been lacking in the last administration was a president who didn't want to get involved. I mean, with Trump, everything was personal. If Trump had died during his four years in office, who knows what would have happened because everything really did go to him. And, you know, the last person in the room with him might always win the argument or whatever. There are all these critiques, but it was him. He was the institution. Under Biden, I think what we've seen, and some people have written about this, is he has these little czars, you know, and Ron Klein is obviously very powerful, but if Biden disappeared, the machine would kind of work on its own. Gina McCarthy would handle handle environmental stuff, and he backs these people to the hilt, you know, and they tell him what to say, and he doesn't care. Trump cared a lot. I think one of the dysfunctions was not backing up, you know, the hiring people or not necessarily understanding how to negotiate um, in a new negotiating environment, you know, how to how to execute on the plan and manage a totally different beast. So on that thought, one thing that you wrote, and, and I'll read it out here, I think it's well written and, and, and to a degree true, relates to this, this question of hiring and staffing up and ultimately the removal power. But what you wrote is this, it's on your Substack. 
um, which I encourage you know our, our, our listeners to read too. Uh, you wrote, quote, but you know what? The money isn't the issue. The issue is that we need our own army of local bureaucrats and we need to fight for our locales, ellipsis. I'm going <laughs> to uh, parenthetically cut some things in the middle, but, but you ended up saying, so I'm excited about Georgia and the willingness of the state to fight back, actually fight back and not just grift off complaining about unfair treatment, and then I think you allude to, to David French. Uh, Governor Kemp's political fortunes inspire whiplash. And God bless the man. He has seized upon a wonderful opportunity here and deserves a long career if he continues to be so savvy. Uh, so I obviously kept the, the Governor Kemp praise. Uh, but but regardless, I, I think there's something there about, about how you staff administration. And ultimately, when people don't do that, when they don't follow the, the really political will of the people that voted into office, in this case, a president, but but it could be a governor or, or, or any executive official. How do you go about removing them? Yeah, so first, to relate back to a point I made earlier about rules, my point about Georgia is largely to say people shouldn't shy away from sovereignty. Maybe the most important legal, you know, locus of sovereignty in our country is at the county level, county clerks and county sheriffs. And that goes back to Anglo law. I mean, they are sort of independent and unreviewable in a lot of respects. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and we need to juice that up. And I see a lot of what happens at the federal level as an attempt to kind of remove their sovereignty. You see that with the Electoral Count Act too, an attempt to kind of federalize everything which is delegated to subordinate state actors. So I'm very much a localist at the end of the day. Um, so the, the signal issue is, is political control because we have elections for a reason. I think what we saw with Trump was a lot of, of independence. It's always very interesting to me just to kind of throw a little critique in there when you have people who are supportive of the unitary executive theory on Monday, on Friday say, you know, Mueller should be left alone or we should let the, the raids play out. I mean, with respect to the executive, we know like the signal power of the president, if there is one, is the removal power. He could issue orders and executive orders till he's blue in the face. If someone doesn't listen to him, what's the remedy there? Most executive orders don't actually have any legal effect. I mean, there are, there are limited areas, maybe classification as one or direct Title V regulatory authority, which is given to the president, where his word actually has legal effect. But for the most part, everything from climate to you know emission standards to permitting to everything, all of these things that we did Indeed, most of the personnel-related matters, including the labor relations executive order, were not the president doing anything. It was the president directing a subordinate to consider, prepare a report, or regulate. And that's also how Congress passes a lot of laws. So without the removal power, and not merely having the removal power, but exercising it so people understand that it has teeth, there's no microeconomic incentive for any subordinate to follow what the president says. So I think, you know, the hiring and firing is of the utmost importance. Without that, you have nothing. Like imagine, again, Biden or Trump issuing 100 executive orders and people just don't listen to him. If he wasn't able to remove people, he could have four years of him sitting in a box and the machine would run itself. So that really is, I think, the most important sort of Article II managerial power, if not the only one. And so how far should that removal power extend? Should it go down to, let's say, the FCC economists or to right. the janitor in the uh, agency building? Yeah, so we're asking a couple questions. Ironically, 
the janitor, so the function that one would think is the most apolitical is also the one where, for the most part, they are hired by um, procurement contract and are not actually even employees. So we make all this hay about we need civil service protections because we're talking about janitors or we're talking about security. But these people actually have almost no tenure protections at all because they're provided by contract. So you'll contract with a janitorial company that says, we need janitorial services, you know, for eight buildings three times a week. And then they will, you know, put whoever they want in there. And if that person disagrees with the politics, they could be fired immediately. And there's really no, you're never going to see that, right? So that's the irony. Um, How far down should it go? You kind of raised what you think is the dividing line there between maybe a political and apolitical appointment. I would kind of poke at that. I'm not sure there is anything that's terribly apolitical. At the end of the day, one of my big hobby horses is that cost-benefit analysis is absolutely not value neutral. I mean, I saw this many times. Does this mean that everything, every change of a coefficient should go through notice and comment rulemaking? Maybe. Or does it mean that all these people should be at will? Maybe. I kind of am kind of non-cognitivist about all of this. I think as a practical matter, we have a separate class of persons employed by the federal government in and around D.C. for the most part from the rest of the country. So for me, it's a big cultural difference. If there were a unification of the government and the ruling class in these civil service positions, perhaps we could be making, to go back to my libertarian point, we could be making these kind of neutral arguments. If there were a unity of will between these two classes, then it could be the case that we could make arguments about politicization and non-politicization. But because it's so separate right now, it may be the case that these tenure protections are, are less advisable because what it does is it merely insulates, it's a Mott and Bailey, it insulates the, uh, the ruling class from any electoral consequences at all. And we've seen that progressively, you know, we've seen that more and more. One argument that I've always uh, liked is that we should try to move the headquarters for some of these agencies back into the, into the heartland, back into the places where they actually rule over. So, you know, having the Department of the Interior headquartered in Wyoming instead of D.C. Um, right. I think that, that speaks to your localization Point. Yeah, it does to a little bit, uh, to, to, to a certain extent. So I'll make one side note, which is that under COVID, we could see, I was always very pro-telework, but the sort of establishment, Republicans would always be anti-telework, like civil servants should show up to work. Well, what COVID showed us, they don't need to show up to work. And by the way, a lot of them are redundant. So, okay. But in terms of moving agencies out of D.C., we did move the Bureau of Land Management, um, who is headed by my friend and longtime movement attorney, Perry Pendley, uh, formerly of Mountain States Legal Foundation. So we moved it to Grand Junction, um, Colorado, the Bureau of Land Management. That made sense. And for a number of agencies, maybe agriculture, it could make sense to move the agency out of the D.C. area because they're not terribly hostile to the local mores. I mean, ag just gives out money. Land management manages the federal lands they kind of should be where most of the federal lands are located. But for other agencies, you know, DOD, you know, it's kind of hard because right. we've got all these contractors here. But even if you look at HHS, for example, you could move that. But what's going to happen is you'll move a giant population of blue employees into where? I mean, where would you want it? A red area? Move it to Oklahoma? The next thing you know, the state has gone deeply blue and you've pissed everybody off, you know, 
So you don't want to violate NIMBYism rules, I think, either. I think people have, have a right to kind of their locales. On the other, other hand, so much is remote now. I think what maybe should be looked at is programmatically awarding contracts further out into the middle of the country. So we won't move HHS, but if HHS wants to hire IT services and those IT services can be provided uh, remotely, maybe they should be using Epic systems, which is like Madison, Wisconsin. You know, maybe they should be looking to make, you know, to have geographic diversity. Part of the problem with that is you change that rule and you'll have equal protection lawsuits and interstate lawsuits and all sorts of stuff because a lot of the time you can't make decisions on these sorts of basis bases, but uh, that is where I think creative lawyers are needed. But the, the policy of moving stuff out and using the fisc of these major agencies to, you know, reward friends and punish enemies, I do think is a, is a, real, is a real thing. You uh, mentioned COVID in your last response, and I think COVID totally changes the perception of the administrative state one of the leading arguments, I think, for having a robust administrative state with robust tenure protections is that we need to have rule by experts who are insulated from the political process. And I think COVID really showed us how much of a <laughs> fiction that is, uh, that on the one hand, uh, the experts don't don't really have it all figured out. And on the other hand, uh, the experts can very much be influenced by politics. So what lessons do you think we can draw moving forward from the way that the federal government and the executive branch specifically moved during COVID? Yeah, I guess I would push back a little bit on your framing. I think I've been way too POMO postmodern, you know, ever since law school, uh, and I think it's not just the case that we have evidence that the experts get things wrong. I think that as a theoretical matter, the very notion of expertise and independence makes no sense. So I very much rely more on structure and incentive and political control um, and unity between the technology and the people that are using the technology. But COVID, I think, as a, as a practical matter, it's a crisis. Never let a crisis go to waste. Certainly, COVID showed us, showed many people a variety of things, whether it shows them that the experts are wrong, whether it shows them that the experts are hostile, you know, whatever the case, suddenly we have a constituency that understands in a very granular way the problem of the administrative state. It's not abstract. You have all of this, quote unquote, Coke money, you know, big, you know, center-right organizations attacking the administrative state, trying to get people to care about Sackett versus EPA too. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. But in the middle of the country, when you're having some local bureaucrat doing something to you, suddenly you do care. So I remember writing for years on personnel matters at Heritage or wherever. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Suddenly people care. Suddenly people are pouring money into transition projects at Heritage and elsewhere suddenly people understand that there's a class problem with our, with our administrative state. Uh, I, I think that's only a good thing. Any granular lessons that we, we got from COVID? I think one I mentioned is telework, certainly. Another is that, you know, remember there were a number of different COVID mandates, but it turns out that the federal government for its own workforce can attach pretty onerous conditions and win as a general matter. That's something to look at, too. I mean, just recognizing when the government is operating, not merely regulating, but when the government is the actual hirer, 
they have the ability to do all sorts of stuff. I'm not recommending anything in particular, but if we had the political will and the interest, could they say we, you know, the VAX has higher incidences of heart disease or whatever. And so if you're, you can't be in the military and be vaxxed, look, I don't know, but I'm saying the shoe can very much be on the other foot, you know, and I think the weaponization of science on, on the part of the quote unquote left here is something that we're going to be dealing with for decades now. One thing that we wanted to talk about with you because of your own career and your personal experiences in, in personnel hiring, both currently and in the past has to do with with what it's like being a law student or or a young attorney interested in going into a political field, uh, an administration, a job on the hill. Uh, and, you know, get your advice for for a lot of our listeners who are young attorneys or, or law students interested in working on presidential campaigns and in administrations. So, changing gears a little bit, but but do you have any thoughts or advice for them? Yeah, I have a number of of short comments on that. I'll first plug the C3 that I set up that is doing some of the work now, which is um, personnel policy operations, www.personnelpolicyops.org. There are a number of good orgs out there that will be doing training and things like that. I recommend people to get connected with whomever they can. You know, don't worry so much about politics. You know, everyone wants to give advice. So find people whether it's law professors or people you're working with that can give you more direct career advice. So number one, I think, is network. Number two is be normal. You'd never think it, but, you know, normalcy is a hard a hard thing to come by. You come across all sorts of people that have lots of chops, but they are very clearly cagey or unable to operate in public or have weird workplace issues. So I would say be a normal, upright person. Uh, as well. And number three, I'd say try to, you know, cast as wide a net as you can in terms of learning and adding feathers to your cap. Now, you know, is the time to be adding subject matter expertise there. And there are different skills. I mean, there are subject area skills, you know, whether you want to have an interest in antitrust law or whatever. And then there are topical, you know, or more office type skills, like whether it's drafting or management or communication. So I guess, Focus on what you're good at and and kind of put as many feathers in your cap as possible. You know, I think just to kind of be slightly on the party side of things, I think in my own personal, you know, interest, the Senate and House might change for the better come November. Uh, individuals interested in that have a number of organizations that are good at, at making those connections. When, when FedSoc brings people to your campus, whether it's an AG, or, or a senator or a judge, you might often find people that, that can, can make those connections for you as well. So, so don't get discouraged, I think, is another, another point. Put as much out there as you can and, and just keep do, do the right thing. And I think eventually the, uh, the opportunities arise. Well, that's, I think, really helpful, Andrew, for all of our listeners who are interested in that kind of work. It's an important lesson to be learned. And I think the, the kernel of it is to do the most to get to know people who are doing all kinds of interesting things in the area that you're interested in, which is very intuitive, but nevertheless bears repeating. Thanks for a great conversation, Andrew. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you, and, and thank you for, for giving us your, your words of advice and wisdom about, about presidential hiring, presidential transitions, and the administrative state. Thanks so much.